Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Art of Noticing. I'm your host, best-selling author Johnny B. Truant, and I'm here to help you give the muse the finger and make life your muse instead. In each 10-minute episode, I'll tell you how I spun something mundane into inspiration and show you how to do the same. If you've ever wondered how to write better, how to be creative, how to get more ideas, you're in the right place. Let's start noticing. Today, I noticed something that was pretty interesting. I thought it was interesting. And it's that I rewatched The Talented Mr. Ripley, which I had seen somewhere around when it came out. I might have even seen it in the theater. And if you haven't seen this movie, it's with Matt Damon and Jude Law and Gwyneth Paltrow. And um, I, Philip Seymour Hoffman is in it. Like it's, it's got a really good cast. And it's about this guy played by Matt Damon, who is, um, his name is Tom Ripley. And he impersonates, uh, I don't remember, he, he ends up impersonating a few different people. Sorry, spoilers for the talented Mr. Ripley. He ends up impersonating other people and he ends up appropriating other people's backstories as his own. And what I mean by that is the bottom line is he's a poor, poor nobody. He's just a kid. He's, he's talented. Like one the first time we encounter him, he's playing piano and he's playing it beautifully. And he's able to do that because uh, an existing pianist needed him to fill in and he was talented enough to do it. Maybe this is kind of the origin of the talented thing. I don't know. And he has an opportunity to, pretend to be better off than he is. So he's sent on an errand to find Jude Law's character. And as part of this, he is able to take up this mantle of Jude Law's character's name. Like he pretends to be him. I think he's Dickie or something like that. I forget. But then he's also Tom to other people. And it sets up this dual identity thing. None of the machinations there really matter. What matters is that I remember this being kind of like a almost like a story of a, a forger and a trickster. And he he can imitate handwriting. And so he is a forger in that way. And he is very good at managing the intricacies of manipulating people and manipulating perceptions and appearing, pretending to be something that he isn't in order to, particularly rich, by the way. So he's a poor nobody. He's pretending to be rich, pretending to have means. And I just remember it being like, that sort of thing. Like it was a con artist sort of a thing. And there are several murders and I, that's the way I remember it. And so when recently I decided, well, let's revisit this movie for, we watch a movie every, usually Sunday night with my family. And so I said, as part of this, why don't we watch the talented Mr. Ripley? So we watched it again. And what struck me was it's actually not that story. And I would have told you, again, this movie, it was mid-90s, so I would have probably been in my late teens when I saw it the first time. And maybe I just wasn't sophisticated enough, or maybe I wasn't paying enough attention, or maybe it's my memory that had that had fallen apart between then and now in the three decades since I saw it. But what became very clear to me this time is that it's actually a tragic personal story about Ripley's deep inadequacy and sense of wanting to belong. He sincerely wants to be part of this group of, of rich gadabouts who travel the, who travel the globe. And I think that they're in Italy for most of the time and they just live this extravagant on the beach sort of lifestyle and, you know, hanging out and drinking fine wine, but more importantly, being part of this group. So he wants to be friends with these people but more particularly 
he's he's at least bi or he's gay and he's in love with Jude Law's character. And this is also set in the past a little bit. So I think that I don't remember how much this actually impinged on the story itself, that there might have been a taboo element to being being gay as well. Regardless, though, he's he's clearly in love with Jude Law's character, and he thinks that it's reciprocated. He thinks that Jude Law's character, who, again, I think is is Dickie, I forget the last name, uh, is in love with him, but he's not. And they also don't think he belongs. So th- through a lot of the movie, you're feeling like he's he's hanging in with these people, and you think he's trying to con them, but he's actually just trying to be part of them. And when they kind of turn on him because their attention goes elsewhere, it's like crushing to him that they actually aren't his friends and they actually don't think he belongs. And Jude Law actually doesn't feel the same way, despite them sharing what is clearly a homoerotic bath uh, scene that who knows, apparently maybe Jude Law is like in denial in this in this movie. But that is that's when he he kills him. Spoiler for talented Mr. Ripley. He kills Jude Law's character in part because he's so hurt because he's he's he doesn't he rebels at the idea of of mutual affection between them, uh, love affection, but also just friendship. Like he he turns on him, he becomes kind of mean. It's like, well, you were the flavor of the day. I was interested in you, but now you're boring me. And that's when he ends up killing him. And that sets off a chain of events that leads to uh, yet another man that he falls in love with. And then in order toward the very end of the movie, in order to maintain again, another chance to join that, that elite group and pretend to be one of the alter egos with the one person he has left who hasn't discovered a secret in order to maintain what remains of that facade and be part of this group that he feels like he needs to be part of. He that's then he kills the other man who's a real innocent that he is also in love with. And to me, the story struck me as this tragic story of this person who wants to belong so badly that he is willing to do anything for it. So you didn't come here for my analysis of the talented Mr. Ripley. The point is that it was interesting to me that the story struck me in such a different way. And this goes back to the thing I've mentioned a lot on this podcast series, which is that art is collaborative and it is not entirely up to us as the creators to determine what our art is. We get we get to give it a start. We get to to suppose what it is. We get to hint in, in the direction and kind of give corroborating evidence of this is what this is to me and this is therefore what it is globally. But the person that is viewing it gets to bring their own mind, their own psychology, their own baggage, and and their own interpretation to it. I wonder what it was about me when I was younger that I didn't see that other storyline. Maybe it's because I was young and oblivious, and I didn't see things like, well, people don't want to be friends with you right now. Like That might have been something I was just blind to at the time. So I didn't see that part of it, and instead I saw the tragedy. Well, I, I didn't see the tragedy. I saw the murders and the the necessary tragedy of it that comes with any death but but beyond that it was like it was it was this this con man murder story so anything that we create is re- remember that if it's deep enough and if it's if you allow it to have enough nuance even if you don't fill in the details of what the nuance might be even if it's just left a little mysterious or whatever People will fill in the gaps and you open the opportunity to create something that can be seen by many different interpretations. And what's really interesting about that to me is, first of all, it allows, it's like having 
different doppelgangers of your art. There's the art that is, in this case, a thriller, murder, con man story. And then there's this tragic quasi love story about somebody who's got deep psychological wounds. It's like there are two movies from one movie. And you can do that sort of thing, but you can also have something that is vertical, meaning that the same person like me as an audience member can experience it in two different ways. And then it's like, oh, this movie has so many levels. This art has so many levels. But another thing you can do is just understand that in this case, I gave two kind of distinct genres that are similar to one another, but they're distinct, but they depended on my interpretation. You can also go in intending to blend genres. I have many uh, if you look at my book catalog, you just look for Johnny B. Truant books. Many of my books are like unicorn Western. Like, what, is that a fantasy or is it a Western or robot proletariat? Is it a, is it a social commentary that's, you know, a quasi Marxist commentary or is it about robots and sci-fi? The answer is it's both spanning uh, genres and an opening debate or just kind of saying, well, this is the art I want to create and I'm not going to put it in a particular box is a huge value. We are here to buck trends. We are here to create what we want to create, whether we feel the the world is interested in it or not. And that means why stick to genres? Why stick to anything? Why not let your art be something that can be interpreted many different ways? Because that only adds more to it. All right, that's it for today. If you'd like more, be sure to visit johnnybtruant.com slash subscribe and sign up so you don't miss anything. Now, subscribing is free, but for just a few bucks a month and the good karma that comes from supporting the arts, you'll also get all the member stuff, bonus episodes and articles, behind the scenes peaks, and the weekly one drink book club where my creative friends and I talk shop over Friday cocktails. If membership isn't for you, please show your support by sharing, reviewing, all that good stuff. It really does make a difference. Thanks for listening and stay curious.